Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow, and this is part two of my conversation with Reverend Professor David Gushy about the Christian threats to democracy. If you haven't listened to part one, I recommend starting there. We talked about some of the transformative moments in David's career and looked at the challenges, both historical and contemporary, that Christianity poses to democratic values and how we can navigate them. We also talked about why some Christians are skeptical of democracy, and David explained his term authoritarian reactionary Christianity and why he thinks it's more descriptive of this phenomenon than Christian nationalism. We also talked about the shifts in the political landscape, and importantly, David places our current moment in a cycle of secular revolutions and religious counter-revolutions, which was illuminating. So if you haven't listened to part one, I recommend starting there. Here in part two, we continue the conversation and we talk about Christianity's relationship with the reactionary politics of France and Germany in the late 20th century, the allure of authoritarian leaders who promised to fix cultural issues. We examine the idealization of a past Christian nation and the ubiquitous use of anti-LGBT rhetoric in political mobilization. We also discuss the difficulty of appealing to authoritarian-leaning Christians and the influence of leaders in those communities. And finally, David offers us some ways forward, explaining something called covenantal democracy, which I found interesting. It's rooted in the Baptist tradition. He talks about the importance of civic literacy and political ethics education among Christians to inoculate against authoritarian tendencies. And finally, he stresses the importance of long-term cultural and interpersonal work to build stronger democratic norms. So here's part two of Democracy's Christian Enemies. Okay, so back to this reactionary politics. Um, I think it's important to situate America in the broader landscape of what's happening around the globe. Uh, on this podcast, we've talked quite a bit about what's going on in Hungary uh, and and even in Brazil. You also talk about Hungary, Brazil, France, Germany, Russia, Poland. Um, maybe you can walk through your look at reactionary politics around the globe, um, as it, you also mentioned Israel, uh, as it's been developing, and what role Christianity has played in these movements, and what are the through lines you've seen that have sounded alarm bells? I do think it's helpful for people to understand, you know, while American democracy is unique, and democracies, I think, now more than ever need each other to survive, um, it's not just happening here. Right. I have um, two chapters that take a longer historical look. The ones on France and Germany go back to the uh, 19th century, um, to talk about kind of that story that I was sketching earlier about early modern reactions to, you know, democracy and, uh, modern capitalism and all that stuff. And so that what's interesting to me about those chapters is right-wing reactionary politics in France helped to yield the Vichy regime during the Nazi years. And certainly in Germany helped to yield the Nazi regime in 1933. And so Christians were a part of those right-wing reactionary movements that helped to to lay the groundwork for that. So if you have that interest in that kind of history, as I do, that's what those chapters are for. But the modern chapters, each country has its own history, its own um, trajectory, church-state arrangements, you know. But I think a basic through line is something like this. Um, we are or were a Christian nation, whether it's Orthodox, Catholic, or Protestant. Um, that is God's will for us, and that is that was that was 
what was always best. Modern liberalizing forces threaten or have really damaged or done away with our Christian nationhood, our Christian civilization, whether at the political level or at the cultural level or the legal level or whatever. Um, now, now fill in all the evidences of everything that has gone wrong. Okay, so here's all the, you know, um, and you know, interestingly, in every case that I've seen, anti-LGBTQ um, demagoguery is always part of the script. Always. If it weren't for those liberals, the whatever people would be back in the closet. Okay. So anyway, name your social ills, right? Uh, out of wedlock births or uh, feminist movement or divorce rates or abortion or homosexuality or, or whatever. Um, we've been waiting uh, too patiently for this madness to end. We need to organize to defeat it. And a strong man comes around, comes along and says, I am the solution. I alone can fix um, it. I alone can fix it. Um, by the way, a fundamentally anti-democratic <laughs> statement, course. right, that Trump made. <laughs> yeah. I alone can fix it, Vladimir Putin and Viktor Orban and Jair Bolsonaro and Donald Trump. I alone can push back the forces of wokeness and critical race theory and gay rights and transgenderism and so on. Um, but to make an omelet, you got to break a few eggs. So um, trust me as I do what I have to do um, to push back the forces of darkness. So it can take the form of a flat-out autocracy like Putin has developed in Russia. Orban has gone a long way towards creating an illiberal post-democracy in Hungary. In Poland, the Law and Justice Party was defeated. In Brazil, Bolsonaro was defeated, in both cases by pretty close margins. Early. Yeah. Um, and in the U.S., I thought in 2020, Trump was defeated. In 2022, Trumpists were defeated. Mm -hmm. But by golly, he's back. And his people are back. So um, Christian civilization that has been weakened by liberalizing forces, as evidenced by these awful social trends, democracy is not, at least we can't play by the old rules. Too much is at stake. It's not working. We need a strong man who will do what is necessary to take the country back and make it great again, which means making it Christian again, which usually means making it authoritarian, patriarchal, um, white. By the way, in in Europe, the anti-Semitism is always is is, yeah. is often latent here, yeah. right? Yeah. In Hungary, Russia, because um, the lo the long history there, in um, and in in North and South America, it's often anti-black, you know, anti-brown, anti, -brown, anti uh, everything other than white. It's a white supremacist message. It's a it's a misogynist message often, and uh, it's certainly anti-gay. Yeah. Yeah, always. I thought that was very interesting. You pointed out it all in all of these uh, cases, anti-LGBTQ rhetoric makes a prominent uh, appearance. Um, there, there's this section heading in the book uh, that I think describes a phenomenon we're seeing and that you're talking about now. They sang the old songs without the old faith. Right? <laughs> I'm glad you caught right. that. I, I, nobody's asked me about that it's, yet. It's it's perfect. Uh, 
because I'd love for you to talk about, uh, and this is a great segue to Trump as you, uh, as you raised him, um, the use of, of political ideologies that reflect a faith tradition uh, being used by non-Christians, or uh, your term, post-Christians, um, and the danger that represents. We've talked about uh, previously, Matthew Taylor talked about uh, how the New Apostolic Reformation folks, the charismatic um, Christians, uh, saw Trump as a Cyrus, a modern-day Cyrus, who is not one of them, really, but they're happy to have him be used uh, by God for their purposes. So I wonder if you could um, talk about that threat specifically. <clears throat> I'm teaching my class on Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, on Wednesday. And uh, we are in 1933 when Hitler comes to power in Germany. And in the textbook uh, that I'm using, we have the speeches of Hitler in 33, in which he is using a lot of God talk. Hitler used God talk especially early on, to um, help the religious folk feel comfortable, even though his movement was fundamentally anti-Christian and ungodly. And they talked among themselves about, you can, be a not, you can be a German, they said, which meant Nazi, or you can be a Christian, but you can't be both. Um, but that isn't what they said in 1933, because they were trying to, um, to bring the Christians along. Um, not to make a direct comparison, but but the use of religious language to bring the Christians along is an old strategy. Mm. And, and Christians are head-scratchingly susceptible to somebody just throwing some rhetorical bones their way and, um, and feeling, oh, this is our guy. This, this is our guy. He's, he's with us. You know, maybe he's even born again. Maybe he doesn't even know it. Um, uh, Christians can be played like a like a fiddle if somebody knows how to you know to just kind of use the religious language so there's that piece of it but but the deeper thing that that head section head was pointing to is a movement can consider itself to be pro-christian long after any authentic kind of christianity has been leached out of it and that's also what David French was talking about in that article that, that I mentioned that you cited. Some of us used to like have some content for what it meant to be a Christian. It meant things like attempting to love your neighbor and, you know, and all things like that. Um, playing fair. Oh, there are various things, right? I mean, I'm a Christian ethicist. I could, I could tell you a whole well, semester Quite basically to live as Christ did or to try to. Right, to. Christ, to try yeah. to, right? The imitation of Christ. He sets the example. We want to be people who are heading in that direction, right? You know? Um, in this kind of tribalist post-Christian politics, all of that gets thrown out the window. It doesn't matter. What matters is winning the culture war. And you can't be, you actually will see people on social media these days saying, you can't be a namby-pamby, turn-the-other-cheek type person when you're in a war. When you're in a war, you got to be tough. You got to take that hill. And so the rise of a, of a kind of a post-Christian tribalist militancy that I think describes a lot of Trump, Trump's persona and his followers. And 
So his coalition actually consists, even on the religious side, I would say, of the still Christian and the post-Christian. But the post-Christian would say that they're Christian. Because what they mean by Christian has now been redefined. It means something like restoring white dominance, pushing back the immigrants, um, rolling back certain cultural liberal liberalizations, um, you know, and taking power from the liberals. This is reminding me of a conversation I have mentioned one or two times on the show. It's from private conversation I had with a family friend of, of the same Pentecostal religious tradition I came up in. Uh, so maybe it was 2015. I asked uh, this person, would you be willing to trade democracy for theocracy if you got more of what you want? And I was asking this question rhetorically, expecting a, you know, of course not, rea- uh, reaction. Um, but the response was, huh, I, I'll have to think about that. Yeah. And um, that was the first moment I recognized the power of what, uh, what Trump was doing and his appeal to sincere people of faith uh, and the potency of the countercultural um, movement just beginning mm-hmm. to sort of crystallize um, for me. So... Uh, what I wonder is how, how much an idealized version of the past, I think the way you put it in the book, or maybe it was, this was the, was the, the Fitzstern quote, uh, uh, the movement sought to destroy the despised present in order to recapture an idealized past in an imaginary future. Yeah. They, they were disinherited conservatives with nothing to conserve. Um, so can you talk about maybe the, the role that an idealized past plays in, in these reactionary movements? An idealized past in an imagined Such future. a beautiful quote. Fritz Stern, yeah. Fritz Stern was brilliant. Yeah. Um, and he was talking about reactionary politics in pre-Nazi Germany. Um, uh, that quote, I think, speaks a lot to where we are. I mean, the potency of make America great again. Um, I mean, how many political slogans in our lifetime have had that kind of staying power? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, different politicians have tried it. Um, uh, we will remember that slogan long after Trump is gone. Yeah. So it, um, it's, a, a, it's a howl of outrage at the the, their perception of the current reality. And you know, the way Trump often does in his speeches, he, you know, America's going to hell. Let me tell you, I mean, it's just, let me tell you everything that's awful. And then, you know, urban crime or uh, whatever, you know, or whatever the list of, of things, um, often race tinged, right? I think make America great again, harkens back to, um, uh, segregationist America, frankly, mm-hmm. white-dominated America, male-dominated America, uh, an America with Christian, overt Christian language more taken for granted in every 
kind of in every quadrant. It's a nostalgia politics. Yeah. Um, and you can see, you know, various cultural products that do reflect a kind of a nostalgia politics. Yeah. Uh, um, and, you know, even now, like, you know how you, there are these Christmas movies that are kind of the annual Christmas chestnuts, yeah. you know? Um, but if you look at a movie like White Christmas or um, Holiday Inn or whatever, I mean, pretty much everybody in all these movies is white. Um, and there's a, there's a sentimental, um, by the way, one of the themes of all reactionary politics is the desire for a lost unity. Mm. Uh, you definitely saw that in the Hitler movement. Yeah. This country is fragmented on all these lines, class lines and, and religious lines and so on. I will bring unity. Yeah. But, but how authoritarians bring unity is by picking part of the people as the norm yeah. and crushing or driving out everybody else. So yes, it's nostalgia politics for an imagined past. Um, but I think that a lot of that past involves the suppression of even remembering that there always were other people in America. Mm. <laughs> And there always were people of other religions and there always were cultural and economic divisions. Um, But, but all of that gets elided in the dream world of the nostalgic imagined past. Speaking of the Germans, um, you, you wrote about Nazified quasi Christianity uh, and um, that movement as a debased faith. Um, and so I'm wondering how that dividing line impacts the way ARC groups respond to uh, other Christians who are critical of them. So we talked at the top about um, the importance of this message in particular coming from a, uh, a practicing um, Christian do those criticisms hold water with authoritarian reactionary Christians? Who are the types of Christian leaders? I think this is really important. Who could actually appeal to them? Because we're having this conversation. Um, I think we are uh, to, to a large degree of like mind on the, on the topic, um, as are many of the other guests that we have come on the show. Um, the people who really need to hear this message um, I don't know of the uh, what type of Christian leader, what the profile of a person would be who could appeal to at least a significant portion of the uh, ARC Christians we're talking about. What does that person look like, um, and how do they respond to this message? Well, one of the things that I think we're seeing is that. Well, I'll I'll, I'll tell you a story. Um, when I was an evangelical and we were trying to affect evangelical opinion, a lot of times what we would do is we would appeal to evangelical gatekeepers to, to sign like our declarations and stuff like on climate change or on torture. Right. Yeah. That, that was uh, 50, almost 20 years ago now. And so who are the evangelical gatekeepers? They were people like major pastors and 
um, uh, seminary and college presidents and parachurch organization leaders like World Vision mm-hmm. or uh, Campus Crusade or something. And, the, and, and then if you could get the National Association of Evangelicals, that was even better, right? So, so we would assemble signature lists based on, um, based on perceived influence. And what we already discovered 15 years ago was no matter how strong a signature list we got, it did not affect grassroots evangelical opinion. Already 15 years ago, the evangelical gatekeepers were losing their people. It was pretty clear. So like when the U.S. was torturing people after 9-11, we, we commissioned a poll with Faith in Public Life um, of religious attitudes towards torture, and the most pro-torture constituency was white evangelicals. Wow. And we had been working to change that and not really getting anywhere. I mean, you're getting in the, you know, in the margins, maybe 3 to 5% maybe. But, sure. And I think that's what's happened— um, you know, evangelicalism was always kind of a populist movement anyway. And I think the number one religious leader in evangelical America today is Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, he holds much more sway than the average pastor or uh, seminary professor or or evangelist or, or book writer. And he's not even um, one himself. He's, he's not <laughs> even one, right? He's not one. And he doesn't really pretend to be one. Um, so, so, we've, so who could appeal... Um, I think there may be some pastors in specific denominational constituencies who are already at this time attempting to throw the brakes on or push back some. Um, we don't even know their names. I mean, I, I, I know people who have left who are in the post-evangelical camp because they tried and failed. Right. I've heard a lot of those stories. Uh, Russell Moore is a good example of somebody who who saw this happening in the Southern Baptists and tried to raise a warning and got forced out. Now he's at Christianity Day magazine, which is encouraging. He's not totally out of the evangelical world at this time, right? So he's safe there. Nobody can get to him. But um, but I think the grassroots in general is not listening to their religious leader gatekeepers. So So what your question brings to mind is, might there be a politician a post-Trump politician who could help to pull some of these Christians away from extremism, but who would be trustworthy enough to them that they would say, he has our interests at heart. He knows. He gets us. He, he knows. I think the idea was that Ron DeSantis was going to be that person. Yeah. And he failed. Yeah. Um, maybe because his strategy was flawed or maybe because his personality was flawed. but. But what does it say that, in a sense, the evangelicals that I'm talking about are in some ways lost to sober-minded religious leadership? I mean, it doesn't say anything good. Uh, I think it's right. I think it's true. Yeah, I, I, I think it is, too. It is sort of—it's baffling to me that, 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 a, that a sincere faith can be so welded on to a political movement. And, you know, the, the idea that evangelicals should be involved in this way or that Christians should be involved in this way in, in politics to this extent in the first place uh, is, um, is, is itself quite a fascinating uh, 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 development. But the, 
I think there are Christians who have exited the church structures altogether. The, the Christians who, who are sincere in their faith, who recognize the threat to um, democracy, who value uh, democracy and its principles and its institutions and its norms, um, uh, and believe in, in pluralism, and also hold sincerely, uh, perhaps even a very conservative faith, have exited altogether because church structures have become co-opted by politics. And uh, and I may be bastardizing this reference, but Trump has become the shibboleth for those communities now. And right, um, yeah. So I I would like to steer us toward a way forward here. Okay. Um, um, and uh, and you. Uh, admit quite clearly in the book um, that I shouldn't ask you for a solution, right? <laughs> that, that, that these aren't solutions, but you offer some resources, and um, maybe the 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 an overview of the Christian traditions you've you've looked to for a path forward would be helpful and give some give people some hope. Sure. Um, t- just briefly to your last uh, comment, yes, the post-evangelical population is is filled with uh, people just like you described who've left for a variety of reasons, but MAGA Trumpist evangelicalism is one main reason. Fortunately, some of them are finding new churches or their churches are evolving. So actually Trump is helping to create a religious fracturing of an already religiously fractured landscape. Mm. I think Um, evangelicalism is getting smaller, kind of like the Republican party and getting um, more white hot, extreme like the Republican Party, because in essence, there is no difference between white evangelicalism and the Republican Party at this point. Anything you can say about one, you can say about the other, right? And by the way, anytime you can say that about a religious community, it is in serious trouble in any country, because no religious community can ever be that identified with one politics, uh, one partisan or one person and be healthy, right? Uh, um, So to the resources, I already mentioned one of them, the covenantal tradition that the Puritans introduced. I think the Puritan vision, and it wasn't only theirs, the covenantal vision, which is a biblical vision actually, has has potential for thinking about politics. And in fact, I make the bigger claim that covenantalism is already kind of in our politics. You might say that the Constitution is kind of a national covenant, not with God but with one another. Um, and, uh, it, and when our politicians make vows, <laughs> like at inaugurations, to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States, our military officers do the same thing. Many other people do. They are doing, they're, they're doing covenant, covenant rituals. They're basically making sacred oaths. I think that's, amazing. I also, it helps provide a way to critique somebody like Trump. We want in office people who keep covenants. If they make a promise, they mean it. If they sign a financial disclosure form, it's honest. Just drop that in there for you, Ron, right? The, the, um, this, is, this is, by the way, exactly what the, uh, the Reconstructionist framers had in mind with the 14th Amendment. Uh, and section three, they were after oath breakers. They yeah. were. They were after oath yeah. breakers because, because they understood the significance of the oath that had been taken to the Constitution. Yeah. 
Um, so oathbreakers should not be allowed to be office holders because they've proven themselves unworthy because they're not covenant keepers, right? I also talk in that chapter about how people in, in various roles would do well to remind us of the covenant that they understand themselves to be undertaking, like judges, yeah, attorney, the attorney general, you know, a police officer, um, uh, the school principal, uh, anybody. Here's what I understand my sacred responsibilities to be, and here is my promise to you. And you can hold me accountable to these promises, right? Um, a covenantal tradition is richer than just a social contract, Lockean social contract, where we give up some of our liberty in order uh, to have police protection so that our houses don't get invaded by criminals or something, right? Uh, a covenant really is about the common good. We're making we're making promises to to take care of each other and to take care of the community and the polity that has been established. Um, and so you want political leaders and uh, office holders who are covenantal in their thinking and in their character. They have the capacity to keep covenant. What I would say about Trump is he's never demonstrated once the capacity to keep a covenant, whether in business, personal life, or in politics. So why should he be in charge of the most significant covenant the, of all in terms of our country, right? Don't get me started on that. But anyway, and I also was able to retrieve some language from Martin Luther King that um, uh, he was talking about the need for a new democratic covenant all, all the way back in the 60s. And that gets to a second resource that I name, which is the Black Christian dissenting democratic tradition. That Black Christians persuasively can be argued to be the true Democrats of American history. They're the ones who saw the flaws in the, in the covenant from the beginning because they were not included. And they fought and bled and pleaded and worked for a covenant in which they and everybody else is included on equal terms. And they left some uh, land, landmarks of, of documents and action that indicate uh, a vision of a multiracial democracy in which everybody has a place at the table. So it's Frederick Douglass and Ida B. Wells Barnett and uh, W.E.B. Du Bois and, um, and Martin Luther King and, and people like Raphael Warnock operating out of the same tradition. Yeah. Warnock, who is our senator here, um, speaks about the need for a uh, democratic covenant. He uses that language. It's, he has used that language. I've wow. seen it. Yeah. You should ask him sometime. You get him yeah. on the show. What do you think about yeah. that? Uh, and then the other tradition that I mentioned is the Baptist or congregational tradition, which I've already kind of alluded to in terms of here was a tradition of marginalized dissenting Christians who knew what it felt like to be mistreated by government, who demanded in the U.S. disestablishment of religion, religious liberty, freedom of uh, of religion, freedom from religion. Um, and um, and who modeled in the organizing of congregations that people can govern themselves. Mm. So Baptists, Puritans, uh, Black Christians. Um, by the way, one reviewer said, hey, there's a lot of other sources you could name. Um, there's an Anglican uh, democratic tradition. There's a Catholic social teaching pro-democracy tradition. Um, there's, uh, there's a number of sources. Um, I didn't do all of them, but but yeah, there are wellsprings of pro-democratic commitment and theology all through the Christian tradition 
which makes it even more tragic that so many Christians today are completely cut off from those resources and find themselves attracted to authoritarianism. Yeah. I actually found the chapter on Baptist democratic tradition very, very interesting and probably most hopeful, um, especially because so much of the rest of the book is about Christians seeing democracy as at odds with their faith. And the Baptists obviously do not. They practice democracy in that tradition. Maybe you could give people a picture of what it's, from the non-Baptists uh, listening, yeah, what, yeah. What, what does that actually look like? It's anywhere from 30 to 30,000 people, though the bigger, it's hard, harder to manage. But I think of the prototypical Baptist church has about 100 people. So somewhere back in the day, a group of a Baptists uh, decided to form a church. And so they gathered together and they covenanted, that was the tradition, to make a covenant of what they were about. Um, we want to follow Jesus together, and we think that that looks like such and such, and so they would write it all out in a covenant. And then the people would sign the covenant, usually, or make some kind of uh, solemn uh, declaration that we covenant together to form such and such Baptist church to pursue this, this way of following Jesus together. And um, and then it wasn't long before they would need to create, uh, you know, a, like a constitution with bylaws. And so then you have all all your things, you know, your committee structure and your election processes and your hey, here's how pastors are, are elected and removed. And here's how money is managed. And and um, uh, Baptist churches historically had like monthly or more or maybe a little less often business meetings where everything was deliberated by a committee of the whole. And so we talk about uh, how's the money doing and do we need to put more over here or over there, debate difficult issues. Usually it was by majority vote, you know, and if you lost, you stayed in the community unless it was a matter of like conscience that you couldn't bear, right? But this deliberative congregational Baptist democratic ethos, I think is part of the skeletal structure that helped make democracy happen in this country. Yeah. Right. Uh, people who who did church life this way um, would have been familiar with bigger scale democratic processes at the county or state or national level. We have elections, we have a constitution, we have deliberative argument in with civil language, and and then you have a vote, and your side loses sometimes and wins sometimes, and your favorite person gets elected sometimes and doesn't, but you remain committed to the community. All right and you're governed by the covenant, and you keep on going. So there are Baptist churches that are, you know, hundreds of years old that have managed themselves successfully this way all this time. Yeah. there's, there's Maybe there's one uh, distinction that perhaps the, the United States system could emulate, which is that the Baptist system, these bodies seem to me, the way you describe them, to be quite resilient to uh, demagoguery by the leader in that they are uh, you know, if if a leader is pulling too hard in one direction or seems to be self interested in some way, they're they're removed and they're removed. They can be removed quite easily, right? Yes. Um, now it's interesting. There has been an authoritarian trend in quarters of Baptist life, um, especially Southern Baptist life. At the same time that Southern Baptists have turned right in their national politics, they've turned authoritarian in their ecclesial politics. Mm. Not uniformly, but there's a lot of that going on. Um, I heard a story of one of the major Southern Baptist pastors in the USA, I won't say the name, who he was being approached uh, about becoming the pastor, and he said, I will come on one condition. 
And the condition was absolute control of the church. Wow. That the existing democratic processes would be abandoned. And they elected him anyway. So they voted themselves out of democratic existence. Now, does oh. that, doesn't that have some resonance with what we're it's, talking it's about It's quite here? chilling. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, the church was struggling, and, and he seemed like an inspiring leader, and the democracy was not working very well, and, and uh, he seems to know how to lead us, and let's just hand the keys to this guy. And he has ruled as an authoritarian. Mm. Um, the older Baptist way would never have done yeah. that. The people are the church. The people appoint leaders either from their body or outside, from outside, and they serve at the pleasure of the people. But of course, the bigger vision is everybody is under the lordship of Christ. And so the, the pastor is not the king, Jesus is. Yeah. Um, but, but, uh, yes, and the power struggles and differences of opinion over whether the pastor is doing a good job and splits, all these things happen in Baptist churches. Sure. But, but the idea of a self-governing covenantal constitutional community existing peacefully, largely across time, resolving its conflicts done violently, bearing with one another. I think that has something to say to us. Yeah, of course. And it's also probably important to note that you know, democracy, you know, whether, whether in the Baptist tradition or uh, in U.S. politics, is always going to be messier and more frustrating than an authoritarian who you agree with, who you like, right? Who's promising to do the things you want. This is why Ann Applebaum calls, uh, calls it, uh, what is the word? Um, something about the allure of authoritarianism, right? In in right. democracy. By the way, just a side note, yeah. it was it was very satisfying to me looking through your uh, work site <laughs> that, I, that I was familiar with a broad swath of the material because they've either been on the show or read the read the material. So, um, uh, kudos! It was a really really great list and uh, and a lot of Thank a lot you. of a lot and of Apple bomb is one of my favorites. She's she's you know. just terrific. Yeah, she's yeah. Just terrific. Um. By the way, most Christians are not familiar with this literature that we're talking about today. Right. Uh, I think a lot of Christians are actually uh, underformed and underdeveloped in their political thinking. Yeah, and and so that I, I have said in multiple settings that I think the shaping or teaching, you might say, discipling. Remember yep. that language: the oh, discipling of, of of Christians in the area of political ethics, civic life is yeah. civic life is very weak. Yeah. Which helps to contribute to where we find ourselves. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think civic literacy is 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 quite a, a an epidemic uh, at large, but especially within the Christian community, you think? I think so. Um, for one thing, uh, we study other texts, right? Uh, you know, we and traditionally the Bible has all the answers, right? Yeah. So why do we need to study the Constitution or the Federalist Papers or read Levitsky and Zablat and yeah. Ann Applebaum? Right. Um, but I think that has proven to be uh, a disastrous um, malformation. Okay, I guess um, last question, but how optimistic are you that we get through this next test uh, of our institutions? And what can ordinary people do? If you have any, if you have any you know, general advice. Yeah. Um, 
no matter who wins the election in 2024, authoritarian reactionary Christianity is here to stay. I don't think that um, it's anything like a majority of the population. That's one reason why they're so frustrated, because they keep losing in democratic processes, right? Um, So, uh, and in 2022, the worst of the candidates representing that strand were pretty much all defeated. People like uh, Doug Mastriano in Pennsylvania. That's right. Um, So I would hope that a highly mobilized, alert electorate would do that again in 2024 in November. Um, But the relative weakness of Joe Biden as a candidate at his age at this time and um, the relative illiteracy of the that part of the voting population that doesn't understand that democracy itself is the most important issue to vote on. Democracy versus inflation, vote democracy. Democracy versus grocery store prices, vote democracy. In other words, it's the system itself, right? If you lose the system itself, it's, it's, a, it's a new game. It's, you're, you're doing something different, right? I, I don't see how people don't get that, right? Um, so, but the number of people who might not get that, plus the hardcore folks might be enough to plus Trump delaying his trials long enough to to get through the fall without being convicted of anything might give us a Trump presidency. And um and I do think that with greater skill than he had before, he and his people will will move in the direction of an Orban solution. So I just think that's I think that's uh not hysterical at all. I think that's exactly right. I think that is so, what are, I mean, mobilize to vote, and 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 um, in in this election, we have to vote against this person and his team. Um, but meanwhile, the longer slog with with helping Christians come off of an authoritarian reactionary vision, helping them helping them have a more nuanced engagement with the modern world in which we live. Um, Helping them meet LGBTQ people and move away from demagoguing them as somehow like the the threat to their children. Um, uh, there's there's um, cultural, religious, interpersonal work to be done. I guess maybe the hope is that we will not give up on that and that people will continue because we keep encountering each other. We can't miss each other. We're trying to break into red and blue enclaves, but by golly, here we are at the Thanksgiving table and at the diner and in the, in the school and having to talk to each other. So I want this fever to break in November of 24. And then the, the bigger project is still ahead of us. But Trump is even more dangerous in November of 24 than he was in 2020 and than he was in 2016. I don't see any other way to look at it. And so he must be defeated. And by the way, uh, as a Christian ethicist, for for decades, I refused to ever state a preference in a presidential election publicly because I believed that it was not what we were supposed to do. But sometimes you have to make a statement that is clear. Here, here. The book is Defending Democracy from Its Christian Enemies. David Gushy, where can everybody else find you? On the internet, where should we point them to uh, your work? Sure, Ron. Uh, I have a website, which is the the best starting spot, davidpgushy.com. Um, and then I have a Substack. My name is so unique. If you just look up my name, you'll find find me on the social media uh, sites. 
though you mentioned to know I have abandoned X. For ah, okay, okay. But I'm on the other ones. Oh, you're on the other ones. Okay. Um, because they're perfectly unambiguously <laughs> good too, right? And uh, and anyway, davidpikachu.com, uh, that's the place to start. Okay, yeah. terrific. David, it's been a pleasure having you here. Thank you for coming on. Thank you, Ron, for the great conversation. Thanks for listening. And I'm really looking forward to the many thoughts and questions I'm sure this sparked for you. So please do share with us at podcast at politicology.com or leave us a voicemail at 202-455-4558. And if you have a few more seconds to help others find the show, a five-star rating in the Apple Podcasts app really helps with that. Just scroll all the way to the bottom of the show page until you see the stars. Or on Spotify, click the three dots on the show page and hit rate show. And of course, I hope you share this episode with someone who might be open to hearing it. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.